I've got a younger sister named Edie. As long as I've known her, she could talk her way out of anything she couldn't outrun. About five years ago, she discovered roller derby, and she fell hard. They are the shoreway standards of West Cleveland. These girls are thick as thieves. Half of them work together at Lincoln West High School, and the other half steal every free moment they can to join them. They fight fiercely for each other, on and off the rink. They had me convinced that I had never really known friendship. Not like that. You see, before you are officially a member of the Shoreway Standards, you have to undergo an initiation of sorts. When it was time for Edie to join, she put on her pads and her helmet and stood on the rink near the edge, and one of her teammates blindfolded her. Then, she skated her way around the rink with nine teammates skating all around her, protecting and guiding her. Imagine that, the darkness, the motion under your feet, completely vulnerable as you make your loop, but surrounded by guides and guardians. Two things occurred to me as I watched her slowly skate around the room. One, and I say this as a proud sister, Edie had found her family. And two, this wasn't hazing. This was something else entirely. I'm Heather Matthews, and this is The Divide. first time I saw Steven, he was arguing with a traffic cop about a parking ticket in Boston's North End. It looked like a heated discussion. I remember it was raining pretty heavily, and he didn't look like he was making any progress. But he persisted, getting drenched as he tried out charm, then guile, finally arriving at sad and desperate with the gray-haired man. But Steven still got his ticket. Months later, after I actually met Steven, I asked him about that day. I said, why didn't you just drive off? That's about when I started treating parking tickets like a game of tag. If they didn't touch me or my car, then it didn't count. I remember his eyes lit up with recognition and he said, you're talking about Fred. Apparently, he and Fred had had that exact conversation a few times a month for a while there. Stephen was delivering pizzas at the time, and when he left his car to get fresh pies, Fred would often drop by. So his logic was, he's going to get me again next time, so driving away can only make it worse, right? Besides, he said, that's Fred. I actually met Fred a year later. Stephen and I were getting dessert on Hanover, and I literally bumped right into him. He was a serious little man with a well-worn grimace and dirty glasses but he cracked a smile when he saw Stephen. Apparently, Fred had cost Stephen hundreds of dollars in the end, but Stephen seemed pretty happy to see him too. After receiving Stephen's package in the mail about a month ago, I read everything I could find about the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Everything. Even the conspiracy theories. It's a place that's just bursting with fascinating yet useless information. There are five lakes inside the mountain. 
Their 23-ton blast doors are tested every day just to make sure they can still withstand certain death. And yet, I never saw a mention of a Building 12. Anywhere. Here's meeting number two. Okay, this is Steven Menzel at Schriever Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, Colorado. It's later on November 20th. I'm once again speaking with Dr. Adrian Fermi. You were, you were just talking about the sound. Repeat what you said for the record. All right. Uh, we called it the greeting because it doesn't last the duration of the nightly event. The sound. Explain the sound. Well, initially, it only sounds like two tones, but that's actually not the case. Uh, b- back before... We broke the two tones down, and it turns out there are numerous signals throughout. Pitches. Something sophisticated is carried with this series of sounds. For decades, scientists have pondered the significance of art when two civilizations meet. Because art is visceral and immediate. It supersedes language during, shall we say, extreme first introductions. Right. You could say it finds our most basic emotional cues and unifies us. But... I don't think that's the case with the greeting. So, what, you think it's a warning? I I think... I think it's the orchestra tuning up before a symphony. Listen, I, I gotta say, it's such a relief that you believe me. I didn't say I believed you. Why don't we talk about this morning, what you did. You said everything I've discovered you have too, right? That's right. Well, I think you're holding out on me. And last time you mentioned the divide. What the hell is the divide? Steven. No, no, I I think you're here to shake us down because of what happened to me outside Building 12. Jesus Christ. If the military wanted to stop you, I have confidence you would have been stopped. I miss Philip. I miss that stupid bird. I don't know how he died, but he looked gruesome afterward. Penelope, my my daughter, she loved putting cookies in her mouth and having Philip peck at them. It was disgusting. Hmm. Wait, wh- what happened to you outside Building 12? Nope. Uh-uh. This morning, in your words, time's up. All right. <sighs> I came to your house around 7 and waited. Around 7.50, I watched you walk out of your home. That's when I walked up to you and hit you in the face. And while I was picking myself up off the ground, what did you say? Stephen, look, let's not do this. What did you say? I said the H doesn't stand for anything. Why would you say something like that to me? Stephen, say it. You had an older brother named Henry. You never met him. He died before you were born. He had meningitis, I think. You are Stephen H. Menzel. Not long ago, when you were granted your tour of the mountain, we celebrated. We got a few drinks at Horsels in town. Well, I I drank and you watched. That's when you told me the H doesn't stand for anything. You said you thought your middle name was Henry for years. 
Then one day your mother corrected you and she said that she and your father wanted to give you something unique. Just an initial for a middle name. Just like uh, Ulysses S. Grant, Harry S. Truman, David O. Selznick. Not Henry. Why would you say something like that to me? I I've been trying to reach you for days. You wouldn't respond to my messages. You wouldn't answer my calls. You're my only chance, Stephen. I I've never told anyone about my middle name. I'm certain. You, you know how I know? Because I'd remember. If, if you need my help, then why did you hit me? Because I needed you to remember what I said next. There's no second chances with things like this. Then you stuck that, that rusty knife in my face and made me drive you here. Like the NSA and the Air Force won't mind if you just pop by. <laughs> when I knew Steven, he had told me he didn't have a middle name. I thought it was a little strange at the time, but I certainly didn't dwell on it. Fun fact, the director, Alfred Hitchcock, liked the title, The Man Who Knew Too Much, so much, he used it twice. In 1934 and again in 1956. That second time was the classic with Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. I hold my own on trivia night. After my first listen to meeting number two, I was firmly in Stephen's camp. This Adrian Fermi is definitely the man who knows too much. He knows about what Burt Reed found in the woods. He knows about the two tones. He even knows Stephen's daughter's names. But there's one thing he apparently doesn't know. And it's what really happened to Stephen when he came across Building 12 during his tour of the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. If Stephen truly doesn't know Adrian, then everything he's saying is confounding. And him deciding to kidnap Stephen doesn't exactly help his case. But as terrifying as such a scenario is, Adrian seems of sound mind. He's calm and reasonable. I don't get it. I mean, some of the things he's describing are ridiculous and implausible. But Stephen validates him every step of the way. As you might have guessed, I made a copy of that brief clip of the two tones for meeting number one. The greeting is what Adrian called it. I created a playlist and put it on a loop. I listened to it in the car. I listened to it while working out. I listened to it all the time. I couldn't stop, actually. It got infuriating. It's so ordinary in a way, but I'm certain it's important. It's like that sensation you get when a word is on the tip of your tongue. I felt so close to understanding. If only I listened one more time. But it's not just the tones I'm preoccupied with these days. Hearing Stephen's voice again has, well, my mother would say, it's got me flummoxed. All these memories have begun flooding back. Small memories of Stephen. The way he'd push my glasses up when I was cooking with messy hands. The way a sadness always crossed his face when he talked about his father. The way he'd put his arm in front of me in the car if we stopped suddenly. The fragments that were ours, and only ours. I used to get so furious with him. 
His world was small, and that was how he liked it. Sometimes I wanted so badly to shake him out of it. I told him that he could do anything, truly anything, if he really wanted it bad enough. He didn't believe me. Okay, I'm sorry I threatened you with that thing. You must have known that I had no idea what I was doing considering how much I was shaking. But I had to try. And look, it worked. You're talking to me. Nothing worked. You're not being straight with me. Why don't you tell me the whole story? We're coming to that. What I need from you is a leap of faith. That's the only way this works. Tell me about the light. You've seen it, right? I mean, first comes the greeting, then the light from below. We determine that it's coming from more than one source. It's emitted uh, through a crack in the granite and, for all intents and purposes, is harmless from a safe distance. But it is bright. Like there's a 20,000 watt bulb way down in the mountain. So you say you're a scientist, right? Uh, I have been known to have been, yes. So what's the first step? I don't understand. You're right. I, I've seen the light. And I want to know what steps you took to get answers, and it ultimately ended up here in front of me. Well, this is where it gets prickly. If you're standing at the site, then the answer is right in front of you, isn't it? Cheyenne Mountain Complex. No question. Whatever Burt Reed discovered came from the military complex. It's less than a mile away. Yet, underground. You say you worked with me. That's right. We studied the lights and the tones. That's right. Okay, you apparently got further with me than, than I did alone. Right again. Okay, so, so why don't you just tell me what we're dealing with here? Just spit it out. Just because I know more about this... Thing. Um, that doesn't mean I have all the answers. We know whatever is emitting the light originated in the complex. But... But what? The agencies working out there deal in information. NORAD, the United States Northern Command, Air Force Space Command. They aren't about to let us traipse into their complex and show us what they're guarding or what they were trying to guard before it somehow arrived beneath the site but we had already seen it and heard it on day one. I mean, after Mr. Reed took his little hike, the word had gotten out. And by the time the Air Force was tightening their grip, we were knocking on their doors, looking for answers. So they can't deny it, but they can't help us either. Right. I mean, it's a perfect situation for them. They allow experts to examine it with no idea what it is. 
and if they get any results out of us, they win, and we may still be in the dark. But what were we going to do? Turn down the opportunity? Whether you trust me or not, you know this much is accurate. Everything else disappears when those tones start crying out from below. And then the lights. You get lost in all of it. Like some fog. Besides, every time we sat down with that General Erickson, one thing became clearer and clearer. He needed us. Maybe more than we needed him. So, let's say you're a journalist with, if I may say, no shortage of pluck and determination. Who lives in Chicago with your cat Gertrude and suddenly, more than anything in the world, you'd like to tour the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. It's not impossible, but it's damn close. If, let's say, I were a journalist who was married to a soldier stationed at Cheyenne Mountain Complex, this whole problem gets a lot easier. But I am single Heather, as my grandmother calls me. So instead, I had to start doing some digging. Cheyenne Mountain was starting to remind me of some swanky club that had just opened. And getting in is all about who you know. Apparently, tours were a lot more common prior to 9-11, which makes sense. So there was a time when this place was shrouded in slightly less secrecy than it is now. I guess my point is, Stephen getting a tour was a big deal for an outsider. After making tons and tons of phone calls and sending even more emails, I finally found an intelligence officer that looked like he might be able to help me, Corporal Alan Tarrington. I could explain how I found Corporal Tarrington, but it would take quite a while. Suffice to say, he's not a close friend, but he seemed willing to help me. Let me pause here and clarify something. By now, I imagine you're asking, why hasn't she tried to get a hold of Steven since getting the tapes? Trust me, I have tried. In fact, I've tried everything. Friends, family, distant friends, barely family, coworkers. One person tells me he's out of the country. Another tells me he's part of a conservatory in Seattle now. Neither of these leads pan out. So, while struggling to find Stephen, I think I've gotten access to Cheyenne Mountain. So, I book my flight, speak with my editor, and give Gertrude to my neighbor. As I'm riding to the airport, I receive an email from Corporal Tarrington. I've been denied access. And he didn't keep the reason to himself. I'd failed a background check. I have to assume it's because of my past with Stephen. I think I can safely call this a red flag. So I cancel my flight, ride back home, pick up Gertrude, talk to my editor, sit down in my kitchen and think. It's as if Colorado is calling me, summoning me. Yet, the fates don't want me to go. I'll ask you again, what's the first step? We wanted access to the complex, but at that point, we couldn't get it, right? So we set to studying the light and the tones in every way we could think of. We carted a digital spectrometer out to the site. We lugged out a seismograph and ran tests. 
a Geiger counter to check for radiation fluctuations, a radiological survey meter to examine the ionization at the site, test after test after test, study after study after study. We had mountains of data, but no answers. Then we started sending cameras down the hole every day. It's at least 27 feet down. Do you know how powerful something would have to be to just crack 27 feet of granite? And the images we got only led to more questions. The next step was planning an excavation, but the Air Force shut that down before we even got started. And it seems in this unique situation, all that granite is like some curtain in a hospital bedroom. We could record all we want, but we can't peek behind the curtain. Okay, okay. You need a leap of faith, right? Well, I'll give it a shot. Tell me what happened to you. Well, next came the test subjects. No, 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 no. Tell me what happened to you. I'm trying to. Don't you get it? You, you said you had a daughter. And your husband. Where, where are they now? They weren't at home. They... It's not my home anymore! You say you're willing to trust me. You'll give it a shot. I don't need that. I don't need impatient pandering. I need you to see that I'm telling the truth. To see it in my eyes. That's the only way this works. <laughs> They're gone. That's my fault. <laughs> what have we done? <laughs> he actually just arrived yesterday. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Yeah, I was in a relationship once. I suppose you could call it the big one. The one that got away. When it ended and she was gone, God, everything in my life changed. I ended up in meetings. Spilling my guts to strangers. My sponsor. First time I met him, he said, Life is a bitch. It takes, and it takes, and it takes. But every once in a while, you catch life off guard, and that's when you take something back. Alright. I don't know why you did what you did this morning. And I've got a feeling that helping you might just start me down the path to my own destruction. <laughs> but if I can help you take something back, I will. And hell, you already signed your life away to me, right? <laughs> so, uh, now I want you to take me to that side of the road where you woke up. Let's get your kit, and then, you know, you tell me what comes next. Thank you, Steven. Let's get started. Okay. Bye-bye, Philip. The Divide is an alternate Thursdays production. It is directed by Scott William Baumgartner and produced by Vic Singh. Script supervision by Louis Rigolosi and Kamala Kirk. Narration by yours truly.